My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace, they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablets of your heart, so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Good morning, everyone. Question to get started this morning. Um, how well do you know yourself? Now, studies show that most people find it hard to be honest about themselves. Uh, we're even capable, they tell us, of quite enormous self-deception at key points in life. So, for example, studies show that, uh, generally speaking, when men look in a mirror, they see themselves as much thinner than they really are. And conversely, when women look in a mirror, they generally see themselves as much fatter than they really are. Um, I avoid that by never looking in a mirror. Um, it's much easier. We have a capacity, a large capacity, for self-deception. And I think it's the same in the matter of being wise, the subject that we're looking at through the school holiday period in Proverbs. Most are convinced quite naturally that they are wise. Even if the dysfunction and mess of their life might suggest otherwise, people will still say, yeah, I, I think, generally speaking, I'm wise. And typical of our instant culture, um, we have instant friends on social media, instant food, then we also assume that not only are we wise, but we are wise automatically and wise instantly. That is, we've sort of arrived at a state of wisdom, and in a state of wisdom. And we see evidence of that. Children from a young age believe they're wiser than their parents, and they're prepared to back that in their actions. Uh, folk of all ages enter into relationships convinced that they will do relationships wisely. And the evidence would suggest that's not true either. We don't actually go and seek the advice of others very often because 
Well, because we don't need advice, because we back ourselves to make wise decisions. But the book of Proverbs challenges this natural sort of default understanding of wisdom. That is, it challenges what we understand wisdom to be and how we understand we get wisdom. Wisdom in the Bible is about living well in God's world. It's about, as I said two weeks ago, it's about living life without regrets because it's a life lived under God's rule. Wisdom, according to the Bible, is not something we're born with. It's not something that happens automatically to us. Proverbs tells us we learn wisdom from God's word. But ultimately, as Don was saying this morning in the children's talk, ultimately, wisdom is God's gift. God's gift to us. And we need that gift because we need something to crash through our inclination to be foolish. That is, to be wise in our own eyes, is the, is the terminology the Bible uses. The Bible defi also defines that as autonomy. So we are naturally wired to dismiss God and live by our own authority, and at the same time think that is wisdom. We need God to crash through. And because this is so hard for us to accept and grasp, when we read the book of Proverbs, we find something quite interesting that's maybe off-putting to start with, but it's really, really important. That is, Proverbs goes over the same thing over and over again. There's two or three or four or five themes that are repeated time after time after time. Proverbs is a book for slow learners like me and, and possibly you. It restates the essence of wisdom. Each time turned a little bit differently, applied slightly different ways, so there's a development. It's not just a, a sort of bland, mindless restatement. But we have to hear it over and over and over again because we find it hard to grasp. We find it even harder to accept. We find it hard to be honest about ourselves. Proverbs 3, the passage we're looking at this morning, tells us that wisdom requires faithfulness. In other words, as I say, hopefully you see as I open the passage, wisdom requires consistent application of attitude, desire, and disciplined action if we're going to grow in wisdom and become the wise person that God wants us to be. Wisdom is hard won and also easily lost. But it's always desirable. It's always worth the cost that's required to grow in wisdom because wisdom delivers her promise of the good life. The good life, God's life. The first point I want to pick up then is from these passages as we jump into it is attitude. Uh, determined to be shaped and defined by God's word. But look at the first four verses. And notice again, this is the third time this sort of passage starts with this sort of appeal. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. 
Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you'll find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Again, the opening appeal, third time in as many chapters, is listen, learn, value, take to heart. Why? Because the word for teaching there is the word for Torah. The teaching is God's word, is God's voice, is God's command, God's law, which is wisdom. Wisdom is being taught by a father to his son. The son, in turn, needs to learn wisdom. There are two pictures here built into one. There's a picture, as we say, immediate face value, a father urging their child, a parent urging their child, to be defined and shaped by God's word in all of life. But there's a picture behind the picture, and that is, there's also the covenant God, Yahweh, urging his son, which is national Israel, to have the same defining attitude, to be shaped and defined by his word. And we pick up covenant language in verse 3, that idea of steadfast love and faithfulness. That's the language of Deuteronomy 6 and 7. So if you're going to read Proverbs 3, you should go home and actually read it with Deuteronomy 6 and 7 open before you, beside you. Because the, the language is incredibly similar. The pictures are incredibly similar. Deuteronomy 6 and 7 describes wisdom or fear of the Lord, and actually uses those terms, as the right response to God's covenant commitment. Wisdom is the pathway which realizes God's promise of the good life as we were created to experience and enjoy it. So the command here, the urging here, the plea here is don't be careless of God's word. Make it an inseparable part of your person. That's the binding around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Make them an inseparable part of your person. The thing that actually defines your attitude and shapes you as a personality and shapes your actions from the inside out. And the promise of verse 2 and 4, again, uh, restated from chapters 1 and 2. Actions have consequence. That's one of the key tenets of of wisdom. Actions have consequence. The person who chooses wisdom will experience God's promised blessing, which in the covenant language of Deuteronomy 6 and 7 is the good life, the good life defined by acceptance by God, protection from God, deep satisfaction of heart in God. And in verse 4, that actually extends to relationships generally. Because in our world, even in our, in our world today, people will recognize integrity, people will recognize right conduct and respect it, even though they may not accept God's word as the foundation for that integrity and conduct. Then there's desire. Longing for nothing else than total connection with God, verses 5 and 6. I'm going to read these two verses out. And then as I read them out, just 
note this. I'm going to look at how Christians tend to take these verses really wrong. Probably the most, well, some of the most well-known verses in the Bible, but so badly misunderstood. Uh, verse 5 and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Now, I think lots of Christians often take the word trust there to mean if I just screw up my eyes and really, really believe what I'm asking God for, then he'll give it to me. In other words, they use the word trust there as a a sort of equivalent to sincerity. If I ask with enough sincerity, then I'll get God's blessing. But the Hebrew word for trust here is a very, very different word. It's actually the picture of a person lying face down in the dirt, hands beside their body, totally helpless in front of those who tower over them. At the mercy of those standing over them. That is, the idea of trust here is an absolute confidence in the Lord to lead you into the good life. Why? Because the second half of the verse, you know your own resources will not deliver. And verse 6, the word acknowledge is not just an intellectual, oh yeah, I I believe in God. The word acknowledge is, is far more. It's knowing, it's desiring to be in intimate relationship with God. Is a desire to enjoy his presence through direct relationship and ongoing fellowship with him. Now, those two verses combine to give us a, such a huge challenge. It's trust in the Lord with all your heart. And it's not leaning on your own understanding at any point. It's in all your ways, in every circumstance of life, acknowledging him. And man, that throws up a challenge to us. Because our default position is to have a divided heart. That is, we trust ourselves to deliver certain things in life, good things in life. But I think most of us would realize we can't deliver everything we want. And so then we trust God for the rest. The things that we think we cannot provide for ourselves. But there's no room for that in these two verses if we're going to grow in wisdom. Wisdom is learning to trust God in everything, for everything. But again, God's promise in these verses is as big as his challenge. The challenge is give up all of self. The promise, you will get all that God offers. The idea of making straight your path in verse 6 is also from Deuteronomy chapter 6. And what you read and see clearly in Deuteronomy chapter 6, it is not, it is not 
a promise of a hassle-free life, which is what some Christians these days want to take it to mean. It is not the promise of a hassle-free life. It's the promise that will, God will put us on the pathway to his appointed goal of life with him forever. That's the sense in which he'll make straight our path. He'll, put us on the, he'll, he'll pick us out and he'll put us on the path and he'll keep us on the path. Nothing will run us off the road. Nothing will keep us from getting to the end of the road to be with the Lord forever. This desire, genuine desire for connection with the Lord will deliver forever connection to God and enjoyment of him. Attitudes and desires combine and flow into actions. And in verses 7 to 12, there's at least three actions there. It could be more depending on how you want to divide them up. I'm going to pick them up in three. And, and hear this, growing in wisdom comes at a real cost. There's nothing automatic about it. There's nothing particularly easy about it either. There's no shortcuts to wisdom. It comes at a real cost, which, again, a person with the right attitude and desire for God will gladly absorb. Here's the cost. Here's the price. Getting God. And suddenly the cost becomes very acceptable and easily absorbed. What's the cost? Well, the first one in verse 7, uh, what I'm calling subduing self and nurturing God's mind and will. Verses 7 and 8. Be not wise in your own eyes. Now, who can do that, for goodness sake? We, we, we do that automatically. We don't even have to think about that. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Growing in wisdom means a daily choice. A choice to make my rebellious mind and will bow to God's mind and will and purpose. It means a daily choice of moving into God's word, asking the Lord that he, through his word, will expose my sinful, autonomous thinking and attitudes, my failing desires, my wrong desires, that he will expose them, that he will correct them, and that he will redirect me into new patterns and habits of obedience. Now, I've been around long enough as a Christian to say that's a really dangerous prayer to, uh, to pray. Lord, expose my sin and change me. That brings stuff that you just never would anticipate. It's huge. We find it hard to ask advice let alone be prepared to hear the answer that comes back to us, lest our foolishness be exposed. 
we actually search out people when we do want advice. We actually tend to search out people with self-deception again. We search out people that we think will give us the answer we want because it'll be a convenient, comfortable answer. We actually shun people that we think might tell us the truth. We even try and deceive ourselves before the... We even try to deceive the Lord, saying that you, Lord are the one in whom I find my identity and my happiness. And we can actually say that. We can sometimes even convince ourselves that we believe that when all the while we're backing worldly wisdom which searches for identity and happiness in in family, in marriage, in children, in career, in work, in home, in wealth or health. So the list goes on. My friends, as I understand these verses here, there is no fear of the Lord if we are backing our own understanding or wisdom at any point in life. If we're placing our confidence and identity in things other than God, then there cannot be fear of the Lord. So to grow in wisdom then, practically, think of the implications for that as we live in our world. To grow in wisdom is to be increasingly and radically different from those around about us that we rub shoulders with every day. That's a huge cost. Given that, our natural inclination is just to want to fit in and be one of the group, be accepted. Subduing and honoring, honoring God by reflecting his generosity in everything, verses 9 and 10. It will be healing to your flesh. Oh, hang on a sec, that's verse 8. Verse 9, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Oh, All these verses are difficult this morning, but I need to stop and look at a particular difficulty with these two verses. Christians tend to approach these two verses particularly in in one of two main ways. Either Christians are quite critical uh, when they come to this verse, um, disappointment, even, even angry at God, because they've not experienced prosperity in spite of what they believe is honoring the Lord with their money and possessions. In other words, they think God's dropped his end of the bargain. On the other hand, the other group of Christians tend to come to these verses ever hopeful that ultimately, if they keep on tithing their income, then God will make them wealthy. I want to say this morning that neither of those responses honors the Lord. The first response doubts God's promise, which is doubting God's character. The other sees God as nothing more than an investment portfolio. The more I put in, the more I get out. And I can't see how that's honoring of the Lord either. That's a transaction. 
Wisdom, however, honors the Lord. And this is, the, I think, the, the import of these verses. Wisdom honors the Lord by being generous. Why be generous? It's in response to God's generosity to us in the first place, in the first instance. And giving of the first fruits is exactly that picture. Return the first fruits of the harvest as recognition, a generous recognition, that every moment of the growing season has been a gift from God. From the first rain to the planting of the seed to the bringing in of the crop at the end, the yield at the end. So you return generously in recognition of God's generosity in the first instance. And generosity, therefore, is an outworking of heart attitudes and desires in response to what God has given us. Generosity honors the Lord not simply because it is right to do, but because it is a joy to do. And because it's a small reflection of God's character in us. So when you think about it, you say, when you think about generosity, we give the best gifts to those we love most. We give the best gifts to those who have been most generous to us. And we give gladly. Conversely, we hoard our wealth because when we look at our wealth, whether it's possessions or the bank account, we hoard our wealth. And when we look at it, we believe that it is those things that give us security. The actual amount of money, the actual number of possessions, we believe it's those things that give us security more than the Lord who gave us those things in the first instance. As Tim Keller says, we've made our wealth an idol and displaced God in the process. And again, as we come to look at what appears to be an absolutely outrageous promise of prosperity, Deuteronomy chapter 6 and 7 helps us very easily understand the promise of plenty or prosperity. Because in Deuteronomy chapter 6, we have a context of generosity. God in his generosity took a rebellious people to whom he owed nothing and rescued them from Egypt, brought them back to himself and was in the process of bringing them into the land which would be described as the good life. His place, his people, under his rule. And what was the heart of prosperity in this good life? Not the things of the land itself, but the relationship with God that brought them into the land. Prosperity in Deuteronomy 6 is defined in terms of connection with God and therefore connection to the good life that God wants his people to have. And that's prosperity. They were prosperous, Deuteronomy 6, not because they would have fat wallets 
nice houses and a hassle-free life in this land, but because they were in relationship with the Lord God. Now, our problem is, you see, that we think of reward as something separate from God. We think it's evidence of, um, we, we think God in his great generosity uh, will, will give us things that are separate to him and separate to us, things that we want. And we'll take that as a mark that God's pleased with us. And again, conversely, it's evidence of wisdom when we realize, evidence of growing in wisdom, when we realize that our barns are filled to overflowing, when we realize that we cannot exhaust the rich wine of life when we're in relationship with God. And that each of those things are totally satisfying to us. That's when we realize we're wealthy beyond measure. That's a wealth that in the New Testament says, rust and mass, uh, rust, <laughs> rust and moths and, you know the verse anyway, here, apply it. <laughs> Suddenly I'm sweating here for some reason. And thieves, that's the bit I couldn't, they can't be taken away from me, that wealth. Okay, moving on quickly. Uh, valuing uh, God's pursuit in discipline, even when that discipline is really painful, verses 11 and 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Another huge cost, growing in wisdom will actually mean personal pain and suffering and adversity. Why must it mean that? Because the Lord has to literally prize us free from our foolishness and push us into his way of wisdom. And again, you see, our attitudes and desires will determine whether the challenges of life, what's called here the discipline of God, whether the challenges of life will draw us towards God in greater love and trust or drive us away from the Lord in resentment and anger. And you, sometimes, I'm speaking from my own experience, sometimes that can be such a line ball case when the Lord brings stuff to his left field. Because you see, typically, we resent discipline. Typically, even stronger, we resent the one who brings discipline to us. Why? Very simple. We don't like to be exposed, and we certainly don't like to be corrected. Loving discipline from the Lord makes us confront our foolish behavior and it redirects us into new obedience or wisdom. But man, it's so easy to react badly to God's discipline. It's so easy to throw up our hands and be angry. It's not fair. It's so easy to throw up our hands and withdraw because the pathway to wisdom is not instant, it's not easy, and it's not what I want it to be, and it's not what I will tolerate it being. My friends, growing in wisdom is learning 
to value God's discipline as the most loving expression of commitment to us. Growing in wisdom is being thankful, even in the midst of tough times, being thankful that God does not allow us to stumble into foolishness and continue to ultimate destruction. but pursues us doing what he needs to do like a loving father to redirect us, to correct us, to renew our confidence, trust and fear of him. My friends, do not despise the Lord's discipline. It will take you perhaps into places you would never ever have gone in a million years. But with the right attitudes and the right desires, it will grow you into a new dependence on the Lord. But friends, I need to end where I started. And I'll do so quickly. Wisdom is not something we get automatically. It requires faithfulness. That's all I've said so far. It requires a level of faithfulness that is so extreme in this passage that we actually have to say at the end of it all, well, we can see all that, but who can do it? It's beyond us. So ultimately, my friends, God's faithfulness is required if we are to be people of wisdom. Who can deliver the attitudes and desires and disciplined action? Who can give up all of self? Who can actually, for a moment, really seriously believe they're not wise in their own eyes? Who can lead, live obediently under God's rule? Well, none of us can. So I finish with this. There's yet another perspective in Proverbs that is repeated chapter after chapter. Another perspective on wisdom's faithfulness. God is wisdom and demands that as people faithfully pursue wisdom. That's real. That's the challenge we've just looked at. But God also knowing our inability gives wisdom as a gift because of his faithfulness. So there's another take on wisdom's faithfulness. God is wisdom and wisdom's faithfulness gives us that which he knows we cannot properly develop for ourselves. It's a paradox. And it's highlighted in each of chapters 1 and 2. And it becomes, as here in chapter 3 again, and it's every chapter in Proverbs, and it becomes a paradox, it becomes a reality in the gospel. Remember I said three weeks ago that the gospel is a call to wisdom because Jesus is the wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians 1, 24. Jesus is God's wisdom and righteousness. His whole life modeled Proverbs 3, 1 to 12. God's word defined and shaped Jesus. Desire for relationship with his father meant he gladly accepted the cost of being God's wisdom and displaying God's wisdom to an unbelieving, foolish world. A cost that actually took him all the way into unimaginable suffering and ultimately his death. So Jesus is both a model of wisdom 
and, my friends, our source of wisdom. We get wisdom when we come to Jesus, giving up all of self. We grow in wisdom as we develop the mind of Christ and struggle to express it in every circumstance of life, all the while counting him as our plenty, as our healing, as our satisfaction. So my friends, when it comes to the challenge of growing in wisdom, we need not despair. We are called to put in every effort that we can to grow in wisdom. But alongside this is God's faithfulness promising to give us wisdom in Jesus. What a beautiful, wise thing the Lord has crafted here. If growing in wisdom was all up to us, we would crash and burn in despair. If God worked apart from us, then we'd be so ho-hum and casual that we'd dismiss God. The paradox of wisdom from Proverbs is that we have both assurance that wisdom is ours and therefore incentive in Christ to struggle to grow in wisdom, to be more and more like Christ, to be more satisfied with God, to, be more enjoy, to enjoy more the good life we have in and through Jesus. So friends, pray with me this week that we will struggle with the help of the Holy Spirit to trust in the Lord with all our heart and not our own understanding. And at the same time, be deeply thankful that in Christ we have the wisdom and righteousness of, of God. Let's pray now. Lord, who can, who can do what's asked of us here in Proverbs? And ultimately, Lord, we need to say who needs to do it. For in Christ we have wisdom and righteousness. And from that, then, Lord, our renewed desires pushes gladly and wholeheartedly into the struggle to more and more reflect your character as you modeled this passage to us in the Lord Jesus Christ, to reflect it in our own lives back to you. Help us, Lord, to do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Thank you very much.